The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Matthew chapter 5, if you have your Bible, I ask you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, We're going to look to what has been entitled the greatest sermon ever preached. I hope maybe perhaps as we read the greatest sermon ever preached, it may help my preaching this morning, no promises, but but nonetheless, the words we read, they in and of themselves speak powerfully. Uh, It is Jesus' sermon on the mount, Uh, the words of Christ recorded for us in Matthew 5 and 6, just into chapter 7, of this message that Jesus delivered to his disciples with an audience also that had gathered round to hear the words of Christ. Jesus takes what the Pharisees had so misconstrued into a legalistic understanding of the law, a list of do's and don'ts whereby one could have this superficial external righteousness. And Jesus cuts back to the core of what even the law was speaking to on the, 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 the character of, of a true believer, of a true citizen of heaven, of a true citizen of the kingdom of God. There are so many who apply this passage and even preach this passage in what I would call, what many have called, a moralistic application. Meaning we take what is written and given by the Lord Jesus in these verses and we, we apply some moral application from it as if it creates for us a, a road map for us to navigate our way to the kingdom of God. So we in and of ourselves somehow can take these teachings of Jesus and apply them to our lives and follow them, and and by following them, turn into something that is honorable to God in and of ourselves. That we can apply these moral principles to our life and somehow justify ourselves before God. So many people teach, unfortunately, this passage that way. Hear me, that's not what this passage is meant to do within us. This isn't Jesus giving a road map to the kingdom of God. This is Jesus giving a litmus test for those who may enter the kingdom of God. And and just to give you a hint, none of you nor myself pass this test. Let me say that again. None of us pass this test of what is required to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. Of heaven. That is the point Jesus is making that will lead him to Calvary for our sake. To think we can, by obeying this, become what God wants of us is foolish. And it's also futile, as we will see in just a moment. God is, is setting before us, Jesus even is setting before us, uh, an examination of our hearts. I don't go into the doctor for the annual checkup as often as I should. It had been more like a decade checkup rather than an annual checkup when I went a couple of years ago. And I guess I'm old enough now. They, they, they had me take my shirt off and attached all these little electrical sticky pads to me. And I'm like, what are you doing? I'm not dying here. I don't need you to resuscitate me. Um, didn't know what the thing was, and the, the nurse doing it explained that it's an EKG of some sort that would monitor my heart and the electrical signals, and they could, they could run a test on my heart by doing this just to make sure the old ticker is ticking okay, and thank the Lord, all was great, all was good. 
But you know what this passage is? This passage is an EKG of our hearts. This passage is a test of the human heart that reveals to us what is lacking, what is wrong within us. At the end of reading this, we ought not to think, this is what I am in and of myself. If you're honest, you'll read this and you'll go, this is not at all what I am in and of myself. I don't measure up to what God requires. And it leads us to repentance and it leads us to be given at salvation. We turn to God and we're given what? A new heart in Christ. We're created as a new creation in Christ. We're born again in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, then... In in Christ, with his new heart, God can begin to produce these things within us. Like this ought to define us as believers. Understand that. There's a twofold application in the messages that we're going to be looking at in this Sermon of the Mount, really in most of what we look at when we study the life of Jesus. A twofold application. One is telling us that we, without Christ, don't measure up to what we ought to be. That will never be what God requires of us. And then once we come to Christ, we have been given the heart of Christ, the spirit of Christ within us. We now are able to be what God requires of us. And so for the believer, there is a, a reminder of our depravity, our sinfulness before Christ, our inability to save self before Christ, our, our not measuring up to what God requires of us. But there's also the application now in Christ we should reflect these things as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We ought to reflect the characteristics that Jesus describes here, what his people will look like, what his people will act like, what his people will be like. Matthew begins this Sermon on the Mount, the record of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, with what we have come to call the Beatitudes, a word taken from the Latin, which means blessing or blessing. Uh, if you notice these first words of Christ, they all begin with that word blessing. Eight proclamations of what the character of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven will be like. Blessed are, blessed, blessed, blessed. If you've got a modern translation, you may have the word happy there. Generically, generally, that Greek word in common use in the, the Greek can mean just happy in and of itself. I don't think that hits strongly enough to the point Jesus is making, though, in the context of, of what he's saying. He's not dealing with a mere happiness that anyone can have. I, I strongly agree with the King James Version, New King James Version, and others that have the word blessed here, because it is implying a happiness that is based upon the favor of God, the blessing of God upon you that is not based upon external circumstances in life, but an inward satisfaction, an inward contentment because the favor of God is resting upon you. That's the blessedness, the blessing that we all should desire, that we all should crave, that inward contentment and joy and peace and satisfaction that the world can't offer us, that the world can't touch or take away because of the favor of God that is resting upon our lives, because of the blessing of God that is resting upon us. And so I want to read all eight of these Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, and then over the next few weeks we're going to walk through each one individually. This morning we'll look at the first, verse 3, but let's begin in verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, 
Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Go back to verse 3, our verse for the morning, the attitude toward the Mormon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are two Greek words that Jesus could have used for poor in this verse. One is a lot stronger word dealing with a much more severe poverty than the other. Um, the, the less severe of the two terms just would simply mean impoverished, a poor person. So the widow with her last might, the word used there deals with, with poverty, one who is definitely poor, but it's not quite as strong as the Greek word that's used for beggars. Beggars were completely destitute and bankrupt, having zero, denata, nothing at all to even give to the Lord, completely destitute of any means to care for themselves, having nothing to give over to anyone, but, but on the street begging for others to have grace or mercy to lend them something they don't deserve. Now, which one do you think God uses here when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? Does it mean impoverished or does it mean completely bankrupt and destitute? It is the stronger of the two. The verse could be rendered, blessed are the destitute in spirit or the bankrupt in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's some who wrongly pull this verse away and they think, well, goodness, we have to be poor to enter heaven. They think financially we have to give up. Throughout church history, there's been some who have taken this verse and, and abused it in the sense of you've got to give up all your wealth. That's not what this is teaching. Jesus clearly states, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt in spirit. You're dealing with a spiritual equation here, not necessarily the numbers in your bank account. Uh, Jesus does have some words for the rich, that it's hard for the rich to come to Christ because of their, their self-dependency. But, but that's for another message. It's not that they can't. It's that it's more difficult for them to let go of all of their securities, to recognize their need to come to Christ, ultimately even to embrace this, that they are poor in spirit and need the merciful forgiveness of God. Jesus chose the stronger of the two words here. Poor in spirit, bankrupt in spirit, is an, is an attitude towards yourself about yourself. It's a humble understanding of your spiritual brokenness and emptiness, of your inability to justify yourself before God. 
get that. It's an awareness, an attitude towards yourself of, of your spiritual destitution, brokenness, depravity, reality that you can't, you can't make yourself right before God. You're like a beggar with nothing to offer to pay the debt you owe, and all you can do is plead for grace and plead for mercy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the total opposite of what the world so strongly elevates in our day and age, and every day and age, actually. The, the world doesn't elevate being poor in spirit. The world elevates being rich in pride. That's the opposite of poor in spirit, rich in pride. How much do we hear of self-reliance and self-confidence and self-expression? In my day and age, as a child, we grew up in the age of, of self-confidence being instilled and instilled and instilled. And that mentality of if you just believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything. I can remember our little Indian pride slogan that we would quote every day in elementary school all the way through. Good in, in many aspects. I could remember parts of it and somebody actually shot me a text to help me remember it. We said this with a pledge every day. I am a winner. I am somebody. I will do my best all the time because I know I can. There's a good part there. Do your best. I am a winner. I am somebody. Uh, that's the age of self-reliance, self-confidence that psychology was all about in the upbringing of my life that I can remember thinking all the time, I can believe with all my heart I can jump off that building and fly, but I'm going to drop like a rock. I'm not going to jump off the building and fly. I knew even as a kid there was some foolishness to this. This mentality that you can do anything if you just set your mind to it and believe in yourself. Self-confidence has given way in our day and age now to self-expression. How much do we hear of self-expression? Just be what you want to be, what you think you are, and the sinful desires of your heart even. Express yourself however you so choose, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Don't let any social construct define you. Don't let any religious word most definitely ever define you. You just express yourself. Jesus all the while says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to help you leave here poorer than you were when you came in. And so we've got the deacons with offering plates, and they're going to go around and they're going to collect an offering. No, we're not, I'm not talking about financial impoverishment. I'm talking about spiritual poverty. Being poor in spirit. You know, there's a place for edifying and uplifting encouragement and unfortunately there are some places and some churches some preachers where they think that's all that you ought to ever do is speak good words and words of blessing that are uplifting and here is a word of blessing that is actually humiliating here's a word of blessing from jesus himself that's actually meant to put us down because hear me it's only by being put down it's only by understanding our poverty that we, we, we can come to receive the riches of Christ. But it's only till we embrace the right understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy that we can ever receive rightly the grace and the mercy, the riches of Christ that can be so lavishly laid, given upon us. So there's a place for encouragement, 
But there's also a place for being put down, for being lowly before the Lord, being humble and broken with contrition and even a penitent heart before God. So, this morning I hope to convince you of your spiritual poverty, because the truth of God's Word is we are all spiritually bankrupt, but only some of us have come to embrace it, to realize it, and to turn to Christ because of it. First, I want to stick with this money illustration all the way through. First, consider the creditor. Consider the one to whom the debt is owed. God Himself. Consider the creditor. See the holiness of God. Who is this bank? Who is this God to whom all must stand accountable someday? The Bible defines Him over and over and over and over again as a God of complete, perfectly righteous holiness. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3, the angels shouting out in the presence of God, holy, holy, holy. Threefold repetition in Hebrew to emphasize this supreme attribute of God. He is holy, holy, holy. The Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of His glory. Take the witness of Moses in the Song of Moses, Exodus 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness? Hannah's prayer, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 2. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 113, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. God's a holy God. What does it mean to be holy? The, the word in its most and simplest form means set apart. When you think holy, think set apart. Say, goodness, it's a holy place. It means it's set apart. It's a, a holy ordinance of marriage, you know, matrimony of marriage. What, what does that mean? They've been set apart to one another. When we say God is holy, what we mean is He is He is distinctly and completely set apart from everything. First of all, everything that's creaturely, like everything that's been created. God is the transcendent, eternal being. He was before all. All that has come into being is brought about by His spoken word. The infinite wisdom and power of God brought all of this about. He's set apart from it all. He's not a part of creation where He's intricately connected and a part of it in the sense that without it He doesn't exist. No, He's holy. But as it applies here, He's holy in relation to all that is sinful, all that is wicked, all that is evil. God is absolutely pure. God is unstained by sin and evil. God is not only perfectly good, but He is the source and even the standard of all that is good. He is perfect in every way, and He's perfectly good all the time in every one of His ways. We don't understand the holiness of God very well in our day and age. We read the Puritans and we think they're wacko and a little archaic, but they understood the holiness of God far better than we do today. They understood that there's a a fury in this holiness of God. Uh, a fury that's described in Hebrews 12.29 as a consuming fire. It's reading the verse prior talks about we're to worship God and reverence with a godly fear. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. 
I guarantee you if we went and took a survey in our culture, even in Keystone Heights, and we had a survey that said, which of these do you think is more like God? And on one side we had Barney, and on the other side, yeah, Barney the little, is it a dinosaur? A dinosaur, right? Barney. And on the other side we had a raging fire. Which one do you think God is more like? The vast majority of people view God as a Barney-type figure. A happy-go, easy-going type person that just embraces everything and love and grace consumes it all and it doesn't matter what you've done or what you're doing. He just overlooks it all and absorbs it all. And very few had actually looked to God and say, no, there's a fury to who God is and His holiness. And He is a consuming fire. The Scriptures tell us He's a consuming fire. He's a holy God. No creature is hidden from his sight. Verse 13 of Hebrews 4. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we all must give account. He he is a holy God of perfect righteousness to whom we must give an account. To whom we will all one day stand before. And just as every Old Testament saint got a glimpse of the glory of God. A glimpse of who God was. what, What did they do? They buried their face in the ground. And they feared for their life because the holiness of God is all-consuming. Sinful man cannot enter the presence of a holy God. It will consume us. He's a, a roaring, raging fire. Consuming fire. Isaiah, when he saw that vision in Isaiah 6 of the Lord high and lifted up, angels shouting, holy, 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 what, what did Isaiah respond with? He said, woe is me, for I am undone. And Isaiah, one of the most righteous men on planet earth in that day and age, says, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. When he caught a glimpse of the glory of God, he could not help but see his spiritual poverty. He could not help but see his sin and the presence of holy God. That brings us to our second point to consider. Not only the creditor, but notice secondly the debt. See the sinfulness of your sin. The sinfulness of your sin. Isaiah 59 and verse 2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. Now this was written by Isaiah, uh, through Isaiah to Israel, but it's true, it's applicable to us all. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is man's biggest problem? What is your biggest issue? What is humanity's biggest issue? Is it merely financial equality? You got a little bit more money? Is it merely education? That if we could just get get everyone educated, we're, we're finding that doesn't help very much. Is it social justice? If we could just undo all the injustices of our age and ages past, that would be a good thing. We we want to work for the causes of justice, but that's not mankind's biggest issue. Mankind's biggest issue from the fall of Adam all the way up to today, including your life and my life, our biggest issue is called sin. That we have missed the mark. That we have transgressed against holy God and we are separated from God. We are condemned by holy God because of the sinfulness of sin that we so often overlook is minuscule and is inconsequential. It is what separates us from holy God. And it is what brings the condemnation of God upon us and the judgment of God upon us. It is what has brought all the consequences of sin in this life, including pain and sickness and even death itself. Our greatest issue, our greatest problem is the debt of sin, the effect of sin, the consequences of sin. 
Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery and fornication and uncleanness and lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anybody excluded in that list there? Didn't list something that applies to you? If you can raise your hand, you're a liar, and it fits under the like, the like part that mentions all the other. We're all sinners. And your sin separated you from holy God. Your sin has created a debt that you are unable to satisfy, that you are unable to pay. And the only payment for our sin is an eternal payment, damned and condemned to a place called hell. Revelation 21, verse 8. Cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and liars shall all have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is a payment, a penalty that must be paid because of sin, and it will be eternally paid by those who die in unrepentant sin. God is a holy God. Holy God must punish sin. Which leads us to a third thing to consider. The debtor. That's you and that's me. The one who, who owe the debt because of our sin. See the depravity of self. Depravity meaning the inability of yourself to, to undo the wrong, the, the sin that you've committed. To atone for it. Unable to save yourself. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Therefore by the deeds of the law... No flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So many people think that if they maybe come to church, they get religion, they live a good life, generally speaking of, you know, I love my wife and kids, I work hard, provide for them, I'm generous to the poor. I've heard so many people tell it to me this way, they think they're going to get to heaven and God's going to put on one side of the scale the goodness of their life, on the other side of the scale the badness of their life, and they think if their good can just outweigh their bad, then they're going to get in, it's going to be okay. It's a humanistic understanding of what we think of as justice, but hear me, the Bible declares what true justice is. The, the, no matter how many good works you do, no matter, let's just say hypothetically, you could live that life where your good actually outweighed your bad. I would argue you really couldn't, but let's say hypothetically you could. Does that, does that pay the penalty for the bad? The bad is still there. The bad still has to be dealt with. Your sin is still an offense to a holy God, no matter what little bit of good you can do. Even if it's a good amount of good that you can do, the bad is still there. The bad still has to be dealt with. And just because you've done some good doesn't undo the fact that there's still bad. We know this practically. It doesn't matter when a, a person commits murder, no matter how much good they've done in their life, they're still guilty of murder. The judge never looks at them and says, well, you know you've done so much good in your life that I'm really not going to count that as murder. You're really innocent of that act. No, it may bear out in their sentencing, but it does not bear out on their verdict. They're guilty because of their, their action, because of their wrongdoing. No amount of good that you do can ever overcome the sentencing of guilty that you have upon you because of your sin. You need atonement. You need to pay a debt that you cannot pay in and of yourselves. Isaiah 64 and verse 
6 says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags before God and His holiness. Every bit of good that we can do, it doesn't equate to anything that can overcome our sin. Realize you are spiritually bankrupt before God. You are unable to pay the debt that you owe. Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit, the ones who have reached the bottom and realize they have no other option but to simply cry out for the mercy and the grace of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice fourthly and lastly the satisfaction. How is this debt ever paid? See the price of redemption. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18 through 20. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. It wasn't an amount of money that, that you can bring before God, though you could accumulate all the gold and silver of the world and bring it before God. What is that before the holy God of the universe? He spoke it all into being. You were not re- redeemed with corruptible things, but, verse 19, with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. No amount of money could pay the debt you owed. No amount of good works could atone for the wrong that you are and the wrong that you've done. It took the blood of Christ, the sinless Son of God, dying a death in your place, having lived a life in your place to bear the the, the penalty of your sin, to pay the ransom for your sin, to be that atonement, that propitiation, whereby sinful man can be reconciled to holy God. You need to be poor in spirit. All you need to do is come before the cross of Christ and and sit there for a moment. Look up to Jesus hanging upon a cross. You see the nails in His hands and in His feet and the crown of thorns upon His head and His body mutilated by the scourgings He went through and the soldiers around mocking Him and, and He crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's too many people, I've heard it in songs, that think they look to the cross and that makes them worthy. Like they speak of the cross as if it shows their worth before God. And I say that's not the right response as we look at the cross. What we do when we look at the cross is we get, we get low. We get humbled. We get broken by the fact that this, this is what it took to redeem me. It couldn't be done any other way. I couldn't do it by my religiosity, by my works of righteousness, by the money I could give, by the goodness of my life that I could produce. All of that would leave me condemned and dead in my trespasses and sins. But God in His grace and mercy provided the way, the only way through Christ, dying that death upon a cross, shedding His blood for your sins and for my sins, that He may be our mediator, that He may be the the one through whom we may come to be reconciled to the holy God of all the universe, that He could pay the debt that could only be paid through that means. Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. Why did Christ drink the cup of the wrath of God? He did it for you and for me to bear the penalty of our sins in order that we may be covered in His righteousness. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. David, in that psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, after his great sin with Bathsheba and against Bathsheba's husband, he wrote a psalm of repentance, and in it he he captures what God requires of us so, so vividly. Chapter 51, verse 17, it's on the screen for you. The sacrifices of God are what? What is it that God that God requires of us? We who are bankrupt and unable to pay the debt we owe, we who, who have nothing of worth to bring before Him to earn salvation, the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. That when we come to God in our bankruptcy of spirit, we recognize our, our depravity, we recognize the sinfulness of sin, we recognize He's a holy God whom we are not worthy, much less even able to stand in His presence, but we, we beg for mercy and we come with contrition, with penitence, a brokenness of heart, a poverty of spirit before Him. Guess what we find? We find Grace and mercy and forgiveness and redemption. Blessed are the poor in spirit that in our understanding and recognition of our poverty we're lavished with the riches of Christ for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want to close with a parable that the Lord Jesus spoke in Luke. It's recorded in Luke and only in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18 and and it says that Jesus said these words to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were rich in pride. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Jesus told them two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. A Pharisee would be one who was highly esteemed as the religious elite in Jesus' day. One who on the surface, had it all put together. The tax collector would be one of the most hated men of the day. They were notorious for requiring a higher tax rate than Rome was actually requiring in order that they could steal and line their own pockets with the wealth of their neighbors. The Pharisee and the tax collector went to the house of the Lord to pray. The Pharisee stood up and prayed thus, with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. He had a prayer of spiritual arrogance. It says the tax collector wouldn't even come near to the front, standing afar off. He was, he was back in the corner would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
I beg of you, every time you come into this house of the Lord, every time we gather together in prayer and in worship and in the preaching and the the hearing of the Word of God, I beg of you, don't come in praying the prayer of the Pharisee. Don't come in thanking God for who you are and thanking God for what you've accomplished and thanking God that I thank you I'm not like those other people. You come in here like the tax collector. Come in here beating your chest and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't deserve your grace. I'm, I'm spiritually bankrupt before you. But of your grace and of your mercy, you forgive and you redeem. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Heavenly Father, I come to you and I beg of you, give us hearts of broken humility. Give us hearts of contrition, hearts that recognize the spiritual poverty that we find ourselves in, in and of ourselves. Lord, without You, we are hopelessly lost. Lord, there's so many in this room, myself included, who have come to that point of our lives and understanding that, and we have received Your grace and mercy. We've been forgiven because of Christ. We've been given the riches of Christ. We're born again as children of God. Lord, help us to always have that mind of Christ, the mind of humility. Remember, it's only by You, because of Your grace, that we are what we are. It should never produce within us a spiritual arrogance. We should live every day of our life in a humble, humble, lowly walk before you and before others. Lord, if there be any here who've never come to Christ, I beg you now that you open their eyes to see, their ears to hear, their heart to believe, that they may turn and find what Christ did for them at Calvary is sufficient to forgive their sins. They too may be washed by the blood of Christ if only they come to you with a broken and a contrite heart. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray for Christ's name's sake.